0: I think I didn't become a writer right away because I didn't grow up in a way where I thought such a thing was possible. I thought that writing was something for bohemians or the very wealthy or, I don't know, people who didn't need to work or people who were just, you know, strangely gifted and couldn't not write. And I didn't really know those people, uh, but I assumed that it was like this, these divinely touched people that just had to write.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with travel writer Marcia DeSanctis, whose essay collection, A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life, came out last month. Marsha has the distinction of becoming a travel writer when she was in her 50s. Before that, she was a TV producer. We talk about making the career transition into writing after having dreamt about it for so many years. We talk about Russia and what it's like to travel there and return there over the course of a lifetime as opposed to seeing the country just through news headlines. In general, we talk about what it's like to return to the same places over and over over the course of your life and how those places change, even as we change as travelers. We talk about traveling with parents and how foreign places can awaken parts of people we thought we knew well in ways we never saw back home. We begin by talking about Marsha's early career stint as a producer for ABC News pioneer Barbara Walters. Let's listen in. Well, you've traveled your whole life, but weirdly enough, Marsha, you've only recently become a travel writer. And... One thing that stood out to me, but might not stand out to younger generations of readers is that you started a lot of your early travels were as a producer for Barbara Walters. Yes. And, and so for people who didn't grow up with Barbara Walters, how would you describe Barbara Walters to a Gen Z person?
0: I, I, it's a good question. I have done it many times before. Uh, I think Barbara Walters was the really the first groundbreaking woman in broadcasting. She really just kind of broke all the barriers and she was the first, she was actually the first network news anchor. Uh, and what is a network news anchor? There was a time when there was, when everybody got before CNN, long before the internet, when everybody got the evening news for a half an hour a night. And it was ABC, NBC, and CBS, the three broadcast networks. And Barbara was the first the first female anchor, and she uh, kind of later became known for being i'd say sort of the the most famous interviewer mm-hmm. she was uh, she sort of specialized in celebrities and in world leaders, and she just really somehow got people to tell the truth. She was like your aunt or your best friend or your cousin or even a stranger that you 'd meet on a plane somebody that you just uh, that you just confided in, and I was at a lot of those interviews, and people were like, "Oh my God, what did I just say to Barbara Walters, which is really funny so yeah it was uh, she was a very big deal. She was also uh absolutely incredibly incredibly hard worker hmm. and started off as her assistant, and then I produced for her, and yes, we went kind of all over the world, and you just you 're just kind of this person that 's suddenly sitting in a, a tent with more Gaddafi in, in Tripoli. And like, and she just, you know, walking around with, um, you know, with the leader in his, in his capital city, it was a, it was a very, very interesting exposure.
1: Now you were, uh, you were producing for Barbara Walters. You had actually studied in Russia when you were younger. Um, were you, were you inspired to write at all? Why, why did writing not come until later, much later in your career? Um, it feels like there could have been a if nothing else a, i was barbara walter's producer type uh, travel memoir um why did tra- why did uh writing about travel come so many decades after traveling itself
0: i i think about that a lot i i really do because i all i really wanted to be a novelist but writing came it's it's funny i wrote an essay about this it was in the millions and it didn't make it into the book. It's interesting what did and did not make it into the book, but kind of how I became a writer. But, uh, but I, I think that I didn't become a writer right away, even though I studied, I I studied in the creative writing program in college. And I, I was always writing, I was always writing stories and, but at the time they usually had to do with, they were sort of really bad knockoffs on like Russian literature. They always had to do with some madman in the South of France who was, you know, who was like rave, a raving or something, um you know, which was definitely kind of what I was studying at the time. But I think I didn't become a writer right away because I didn't grow up in a way where I thought such a thing was possible. I thought that writing was something for bohemians or the very wealthy or, I don't know, people who didn't need to work or people who were just, you know, strangely gifted and couldn't not write. And I didn't really know those people, uh, but I assumed that it was like this, these divinely touched people that just had to write. Uh, so I, I, I went and worked. I went and worked in, in broadcast television, but I, I always kept notes and I lived overseas and I, and I lived in Paris for many years and, I really became a writer because I was out of excuses, I guess, that I just said, I, you know, what am I waiting for? Honestly, like, this is what you've always wanted to be in your life. And what's the worst that can happen? You can fail, um, Mm. which I have done many, 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 many times. Uh, and I'm still standing, you know, and I'm still sort of getting up in the morning and, um, you know, I'm facing the, the, the tyranny or the, or, or maybe the glory of the, of the blank page.
1: You bring up a couple of other, uh, qualities of travel, of sort of qualities of the traveler, um, and I'm curious about how those were developed uh, in your pre- and post-writing life. One is the idea of curiosity, which you call an engine that can change fate and move the tides, and then abandon, the idea of giving yourself over to a place. How did you sharpen uh, your sense of curiosity and your sense of abandon as a traveler over the course of um, your very long travel career that is sometimes mixed writing with and sometimes has just been travel for travel's sake
0: curiosity was an easy one because i'm i'm pretty nosy i just am really interested in people and their backstory and their parents backstory and their grandparents backstory like to sort of an embarrassing degree you know and i and i remember things too i remember people's you know i remember the town their parents are from in poland like i Hmm. i remember that kind of thing i've just always and i think it Lends itself to journalism in a way, and I want answers and i have I have a lot of questions I also think I also think my father was always he was just very good at he was he was very good at at conversation and I think he was always like just ask people questions about themselves and and I think in an introvert way and also a person who was sort of raised not to you know, not to talk about myself, which is ironic because I'm sitting here talking to you, like right. talking about myself. But I, I actually really would rather talk about other people and hear, uh, and hear what they have to say, uh, than talk about myself. So I often find when people ask me questions, I deflect back to them. Hmm. Uh, so curiosity is, I think, just the, you know, really a number one, number one job requirement for, for a journalist. If you're not curious, you'll never have a story you come to everything knowing thinking you know everything um abandon is i guess that's a little bit harder because i i think if you're not necessarily a big risk taker like i am like i am not right uh, it's a little bit harder to kind of just let let things fall where they will or let opportunity fall where they will. But I I do find that I'm I'm very conscious. And one thing, you know, I I really became a travel writer, sort of the year that I turned 50 was 50. I, I wrote that story the year I turned 50. It was published when I turned 51. I do get a sense of passing time. I never know when I'm going to be back somewhere. And I truly don't want to miss anything. And so abandons a really an easy one because, uh, you know, or or an easy one to, to, I guess, uh, to be aware of, I mean, maybe it wasn't easy to come by, but it was more easy to just say, when, when am I going to be back in Singapore? I mean, I got to try everything. I have to taste every single, you know, chicken rice dish. I have to, I have to, I have to go on that hike. I have to do everything because I really kind of don't, I never, ever, ever sit still. Um, I tend to not sleep when I travel, mm. which is, which is another conversation. I mean, I, I do have ways to deal with it now, but I don't sleep well because I'm always thinking about what I need to do. So I would say that abandon and curiosity go hand in hand in a way. Um, one is just a state of being and, I would say abandon is something, it's like almost a coat that I put on, like I'm traveling now and I, and this is my, this is my chance. When you travel, do you feel like I got to, I got I to gotta talk to everybody. I have to see everything. I have to try every single one of these. I don't know, whatever the, you know, whatever the dish is that they make here. Do you feel that too?
1: I've felt different ways at different times. I, I think when I first started traveling, I wanted to do everything because I wasn't sure I was going to do it again. And then once travel became more normal, um, I wanted to relax because I felt like I was rushing things too much. I was trying to cram too many things in. And that sometimes a place like Paris, for example, in, requires stillness, you know, that if you try to rush through lunch, that's not a very Parisian way of eating lunch, right? Um, And then now I'm older again. I'm about the age that, uh, that you were when you had your first byline and I'm realizing, and I think it's something that you point out in your book is that, yeah, when am I going to be here again? You know, it's like you, I think when you're in your late twenties, um, everything seems possible and that's a good That's a good way to feel. And then suddenly you're in your early fifties and you realize that, everything is not possible and never was. <laughs> and so you have to make sense of things. Um, so it's an interesting line to, to to walk. I think, you know, just the idea of abandon and presence and they're, they're intertwined. But um, this could just be my own personality is that I find sometimes if I try to, to, to cram too much stuff in, then I'll miss the pleasure of, of, of being still.
0: Well, that's, a really good point. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's my specialty, huh. actually. I don't think it's my specialty. And yet, you know, it's, it's funny. There's not a single story and I've never written a travel story about Italy where I've been many times where I have family. Um, you know, my, my husband and kids are, you have Italian citizenship, huh. but I, it's because I've always just kind of just really maybe been on vacation there or, you know, just always had just this really great time or something. It was, it's interesting. It's not, I've never felt like I've been chasing something down. I, it, I, I think stillness is, is, is a goal of mine. Uh, and, and it, it can be hard. I I did find that in the, in the Big Bend. I have a story in this book about just being in West Texas during the pandemic. And, but I, 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 I could get better at it. I could. And I'm actually thinking about, I want to do something where I'm just not thinking I've got to write this story. I've got to pitch a story. I've got to just gather string, 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 string to weave this super thick blanket. Like, can I just be there and be?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about. And I think that's part of part of what interests me about your book, because, you know, we go places change when we go back to them. But then we come as changed people when we go to a place. And then, you know, maybe we're not static travelers who travel through a certain ethos our whole lives you know that we sort of approach places in different ways at different times it's interesting that you brought your father as an example of a of a conversationalist um that you tried to emulate um because you also bring up your mother in your writing you know just the idea um there's some details of going to morocco i think you're about 24 years old and the photos of you sort of suggested the presence of your mother by her absence because she was taking them um and having traveled with my own parents, I've much, I'm much more traveled than my parents. They didn't have passports until they came to visit me in Korea when I was in my mid twenties. But I, I've realized that I am also sort of a product of my mom's curiosity, for example, or actually probably more my dad's. He's a, he, he likes to study places before he goes there. My mom is more of an abandoned person where she's, she's a great school teacher and it just is just very engaged and spontaneous in a way that I am jealous of sometimes. Um, so I like that. Yeah. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about traveling with your parents to a place like Morocco, because Morocco is one of the places in your book that you return to along with Russia and other places like Paris. Um, and you sort of recall it as a young person and then you travel back to it over the course of time. So how did this, how did this notion of returning, including trips with your parents, inform your own way of being as a traveler?
0: Well, I think about returns a lot. I, I do. I always, I, I, it's, it's one of the, actually the first Russia story in the book, as I just talked about, was about a return. Uh And, um, and I was thinking about putting a book of stories together about returns. And so that was literally the conceit that I wanted to go back. Uh, you know, that I wanted to go back and, and kind of investigate, uh, Go, especially going let's talk about morocco first mm-hmm. morocco is a place that my parents went to frequently uh but after my mother after her all of her four kids had left home and it was my mother was a stay-at-home mom she was um she was my father's wife huh. she was she didn't have her own thing. I mean, she gave up her work as a nurse when she was, had her first child at 25. And so she didn't have her work thing and she didn't have a career thing, but she, it turned out that she had travel and, and Morocco was really the place that she found herself. I mean, my mother, you know, they traveled here and there, but Morocco, she got friends there. She got to know the country very, very well. She got to know the history. She, she w- just, she felt loved and welcomed there. Hmm. She was still my father's wife. But when my mother got dementia, which is a just a terribly brutal and, and cruel disease, um, and she didn't have like the nice flavor of dementia. She had the t- flavor of dementia where you are, uh you get aggressive and, huh. and angry. And, you know, some people get, oh, she's so sweet now. Well, my mother was very sweet when she was, when she was okay, but did not, you know, became kind of the opposite. And I really just went to, uh, to find her again. Huh. And I went to find her again, you know, more than me in a way, I, I really went to find my mother again. And my father is a successful cardiologist. He you know he was never a wealthy man i don't know why i feel a need to say that but he was you know a professor um you know a professor in the boston you know the boston hospital system and never had a private practice or anything like that but um but you know he was just a, a humble man from tucson um of italian immigrants and he just you know just really understood the human heart more than mm. more than the average cardiologist um but i felt a need to find my mother And it was so, it was so, she was so visible. She was so there. I I love chasing ghosts, any kind of ghost, but my mother was a ghost at that point. And I remember my father just, he was at kind of the top of his game and he's younger than I am now. He was younger than I I am now. And my mother just, she was this different person over there, you know, kind of like we all are in a way when we're somewhere else, but my mother wasn't. You know, the suburban mom, you know, waiting for the, you know, the tree guy to come and, you know, and figure out the, you know, what has to be done to the maples out back this year. Um, My mother was this just wild adventurer and she always went kind of off script. She always, you know, she never needed to be coddled. She never needed to be carried around and i did find that when i was losing my mother to dementia it was long it was slow and it was very painful i thought the best place i could see her is in morocco hmm. and so i originally just started looking at all these old pictures and i was like there's no picture of my mother there's there's not even one i did eventually find one but in their pictures uh and and so and she was in exactly the outfit that i pictured her in And so I thought I found it so interesting because she's just she just does what a mother who loves her child does. She was like, this is my child. Look at her. She's big. She's grown. She's, you know, she's taking time off from work. So my mother took lots of pictures of me. And I say in the story that my, you know, my I can my mother is reflected in. My sunglasses or in my eyes, or you know, and like the surface of my eyes, that's where my mother is, so I went to found her to to find her and kind of to get a better memory of her and to kind of solidify something because I think sometimes you know sure I think of her at Christmas and I think of her during Thanksgiving dinner when I'm making her you know her stuffing and I'm making her squash pie and I'm doing all those things but I loved the I loved the Ruth De Sanctis that emerged in Morocco, and in a way, that's that's the one that I wanted to remember her by. So it took, so it was a bit of closure in a way.
1: Yeah, it feels like uh, she was awakened there, like Morocco awakened a part of Ruth. Um, and I've seen that, of course, I've seen it in myself, I guess, but I've seen it. My, my mother is a Kansas farm girl, and when she went to Mongolia with me in my twenties. Suddenly, she was in this landscape that reminded her of her childhood, you know, where you don't waste anything, um, you, not even water. And uh, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about in the context of travel. I'm not sure if my listeners have traveled with their family much, but just the idea that you can see a new version of people that you know and love as they react to places. Did she bring Morocco home with her in certain ways?
0: She brought Morocco home with her in a lot of ways. I mean, she started, first of all, she, you know, she, as my, as my father said, when she landed, she, he said, they're going to put out a banner, the merchants of Rabat, welcome Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) She was, and she would never haggle. She, she just was always like, no, I'm not going to lower the price and then say, oh, come on, you're supposed to haggle. But she, you know, she was just too polite. She has you know, she was saying, why am I going to, why am I going to, you know, reduce, why am I going to offer you $5 less? I, you don't have $5. My mother Mm -hmm. was very New England. She was like, no, that's what this is worth. I'm giving you the price that you're asking. So she brought a lot of things home. She brought a lot of carpets. Actually, I, so funny, I'm, I'm, my chair is on one and there's an, I, I actually really scored these two, (laughs) these two Berber carpets.
1: You write a bit about objects in your life and sort of um, downsizing or decluttering a little bit. What has been your relationship to the things you bring home from travel or the things that your loved ones bring home from travel? Um, how does that interact with your memories of past and future?
0: Well, Ralph, you wrote the book on it. so yeah. Right?
1: Well, that's part of why I'm curious.
0: Yeah, no, I love that book. I have it right here. It's um, funny, I have a little... I have a little, I don't want to call it an altar, uh, because it's not that, but I, I'm very particular about what I bring home. And, you know, it's funny because I always, whenever I'm in these places and I go to these markets and I, I do have a little bit of a feeling like I should buy more things. And, you know, their whole, their whole livelihood depends on tourists buying things. But, but I, you know, I bring pine cones and I bring gemstones. And I bring, um, what else is over there? Uh, Oh, I I actually have the key ring. Actually, not a key ring. It's a key uh, kind of sculpture (laughs) from the Alkavir Hotel. I also have a key ring from a hotel in Istanbul. Um, It's the way I bought them. I did buy them. But I I love, uh, I love, having my memory jogged by things. I'm very, very attached to some of these things, but in a very small way, uh I I I've, I feel like my in a way my travels have really expanded my my identity and my self.
1: I'm curious about the key rings that almost feels like an essay in itself. Like what, what is the symbolism in, in, in hotel, uh, key rings as, as a souvenir. I, I know that once I often would take hotel keys home by accident when they became the size and shape of credit cards. Um, But there's something very samey about those credit card style key rings. And so I usually end up just tossing them out because they don't really remind me of the place. You know, there's something interchangeable. Have you thought about why key rings have become one category of souvenir?
0: I think a key ring is exactly that. It's this object let me into a place that was my home Hmm. for a while. And, uh, and I, I I love hotels. When somebody says, you know, good morning, Marsha, or good evening, Mr. Sanctus, like I hmm. I like I like the possibility of clean towels and clean you're not, sheets. You're not a
2: hostel
1: bunk room person, is what you're saying? I,
0: I wouldn't mind a hostel or bunk room. I guess I, I guess I mean maybe instead of Airbnb. Oh, okay, like, okay. I think people have you know the great experiences there, especially if it's you know, if they're with a family and it's just really, really expensive, that makes a lot of sense. I love hotel rooms. I actually think I put together a book proposal on this once about like, I think it was called like, come on up or something. It was, it was stories from hotel rooms. I love hotel rooms. And actually I'm holding it in my hand now. It's hotel Melody and M-E-L-O-D-I. And what's really fun, room 504. And it it weighs like two pounds.
1: And so I know that Russia is pretty central to your own travel career, from studying there to being a tour guide there to returning there. Um, What kinds of things remind you of Russia?
0: It's a hard subject now. Hmm. It really is. It's a hard subject because it really was, I mean, to say that my range of interest was, was narrow is kind of an understatement. I mean I was I just lived for Russian literature. I studied the Russian language. I spent so much time over there getting to know people in the country and traveled all over the country when it was the Soviet Union. I mean, I went to all the pretty much I guess all the republics um some of them numerous times. But Russia to me, I mean whatever it means to me is i would say what what i what i have the strongest strongest connection with is is the literature is russian literature from you know uh from alexander pushkin on Mm -hmm. lately i've been really interested in history and kind of going back to those you know to the early days of, of kiev and Rus and you know the early days of of, um, you know, the, the Battle of Poltava, you know, when the Swedes got kicked out and, and Peter the Great was, was victorious over, over King Charles II. So, yeah. so I'm very interested in, in learning, you know, in, in reintegrating myself, you know, maybe just to understand or try to understand, not that anyone can understand the irrational, uh, you know, understand, um, uh Putin and his thinking and what his obsessions are with Ukraine. But there are a lot of things that remind me of Russia. I mean, wow, vodka <laughs> 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 uh, in, uh, uh, and a certain kind of music and a certain kind of of human warmth that Russian people have uh, that that, you know, this kind of. Savviness and, you know, Russians are very switched on people. They're very funny. They're very, um, they're very particular. They get it. They're yeah. always in the joke and, uh, um, but also very, you know, it's when I was going there for the most part, it was, it was a country of deprivation and people were, um, you know, were very, were, were generous and were, um, you know, were, were interested in making you happy and, And I used to run errands to people, whatever it was I was bringing over. I mean, nothing, I have another story about this that, that I'm working on. It's actually a longer, longer book that I'm working on. But the man that I wrote my, my undergraduate thesis on, um, I brought his son a camera and, you know, his wife was just scrambling around and, you know, she ended up giving me like some dish towels and, you know, just as always like, we're, we don't want, we're not charity cases, like I'm giving you something too. So I was very interested in, I was very interested in the the literary connections to the city too, to the various cities too. And, you know, very St. Petersburg or, you know, I still, unfortunately, it dates me, but I still call it Leningrad, but, Mm. um, but, uh, it was very connected with the stories that, that took place there. And, you know, again, kind of searching for ghosts, you know, Gogol's, madman and the man with the overcoat and the nose walking along thinking he was the king of Spain and things like that so so those were always things that were you know that just really connected me with that place also also I spoke the language and and uh you know it just and I say spoke because I suppose I still do but it would take me a while you know to say that I you know just to feel like I could really, um, you know, translate something competently again, but, but yeah, I was very, I was very connected to that place. It's what I studied for four years. I worked over there and, uh, and so it's, it's emotional for we kind of Russian culture obsessives. Hmm. It's, it's a difficult time right now.
1: Interestingly, I've, I've been there three times. It's been a while. I think the last time I was there was 2009, um, but my travel experience is so far removed from the, the abstraction of the war happening right now, which is sort of the news headline uh, level. So it's interesting when I was sort of asking you my earlier questions about Russia, I wasn't even thinking about the current headlines in Russia. Um And that's an interesting, I guess I sort of have a frame of reference for what's happening there now in the, in terms of war and russian chauvinism or whatever but uh travel really does give you these very specific experiences that feel so much warmer than the headlines i guess um
0: sure sure well so where were you were you all over the place or like where did you go
1: well i took the trans uh, mongolian from mongolia to uh to uh, moscow and saint petersburg when i was 28 um, and then I returned to teach a writing class in, um, St. Petersburg. And then I went to see a, a friend in Moscow when I was 36. And then a few years after that, I went on a magazine assignment for a far, I did a spin the globe to St. Petersburg. Um nice. So it's all been, it's been very St. Petersburg centric, but actually St. Petersburg is the first city, the first European feeling city I ever went to because I was one of those weird Americans who doesn't, didn't go to Europe when he was young. I went to Asia and I actually entered Europe from the East and Moscow didn't really feel European. It wasn't until I went to St. Petersburg in my late 20s that I felt like I was finally in a European city. And one thing that I say quite often, it was the first place in my international travels where I felt, where I didn't stand out, right? I was used to being sort of the, this tall American guy in Asia. And suddenly I was in a city full of tall European looking people. And uh it was weird to not stand out, to be able to blend in. Uh And so St. Petersburg in, in that sense is a special city for me. I mean, it's a remarkable city in general, but it felt like this strange entry city to Europe for me. Uh I think I'll always have a fondness for that place.
0: Well, and which it is. I mean, you can get to Finland in a snap, but hmm. yeah, I would say St. Petersburg is... So when I was going over there, working over there, we would start in Moscow and go to three cities. And usually they were in the same neighborhood. It would be or three places would go to, you know, Azerbaijan, Armenia and Georgia uh, and Georgia. Yeah, we'd go to. Yeah, we'd go to those three, and then always end up in Leningrad. And going back to Leningrad was always like, this is my place. This is my place. This is my place. And I have this one restaurant that I went to. And the lady, you know, I had the little cakes with the sultanas and powdered sugar. And, um, yeah, so this is part of a bigger story, a, a longer story that I'm writing, but Leningrad or St. Petersburg was always, I mean, I literally would walk the canals and conjure up these, these people, you know, conjure up, conjure up literary characters. And I just, I don't know if you ever went in springtime, but when the lilacs, are blooming on St. Isaac Square outside of the Astoria Hotel. And, you know, it's just it's just the most beautiful thing. The city just sparkles.
1: Huh. No, I've never I've I've been there in the summer and the winter, but never in the spring. Oh the spring
0: it's, the air smells good and the city sparkles. And you know, you have the Baltic and the Gulf of Finland and it's just like and the canals, it's just it's just sparkles. It's so it's just like it's like an oxygenated city. It just feels just very beautiful, and I always loved it so much. And, yeah, it's it's hard for me to, just because of my connection with the place, uh, it's hard for me to even think about Russia without thinking about the war now.
1: Yeah. Have you Have you been back to Russia or Russia-adjacent countries recently?
0: I was in Poland last month. Wow. Yeah, I went to Krakow. And I just handed in my story, actually. So I went to Krakow. So I was, I, I was doing, a, I was, I had a story in Ireland, and I, um, I decided to just sort of extend my ticket, and I just wanted to go there on my own because I had been to Krakow. So this was another. And this is like changing the hat. This is something else I did, but I. In 1994, so I was back at at ABC News, um, but in between the Barbara Walters specials, I did, do you remember, are you old enough to remember? Um, You probably were overseas when these happened. It was a series called A&E Biography.
1: It sounds vaguely uh, familiar, but I was, in the late 90s, I was overseas, so.
0: Yeah, so A&E Arts and Entertainment Network, which obviously is still around, they did this and a seminal series called Biography. And so they just did biographies of just everybody you can imagine, but obviously not everybody. But so I did a, the biography of John Paul II of the Pope. Huh. And so I produced it and I went to Krakow and, uh, which is where he's, he's not from, he's from very near there, but he went to university there, um, taught at, you know, Jagiellonian University and then became the Archbishop of Krakow. And, of course, it was the first non-Italian pope in 400 years. And huh. and it was just this very post-Soviet situation. It was 94. It was only a couple of years since Solidarity and, you know, and kind of like for one's the the president had, had uh, you know, kind of dismantled the communist regime there. And I just thought this is just a, to talk about returns like this is just a weird echo of that time. I mean. The Russians are like at the practically at the border now? Like this is this is really crazy. Wow. But I also thought like maybe I can find a story over there. I sort I thought, well, I'm gonna tie on my hard news boots again. It's hmm. been a while and I'm just gonna go find a story there and, you know, not be in the way of the humanitarian workers. Um, but you know, maybe find somebody who's you know, whose story I can tell, like maybe. So I actually did find that person. She now wants to be anonymous because her father is still in Mariupol. Mm. But I I plan on following her around. She's in Europe now safely. You, You know, you just kind of see this crowd of people. And I knew that that was the person that I wanted to talk to. And it was weird. I just connected with her and um and we did we we stayed in touch but then i wrote a, another story uh just about the 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 tourism situation not really tourism but you know the place is just denuded of international tourists but um mm-hmm. but it's 160 miles from the border but there's there's obviously a huge humanitarian crisis
1: this actually ties into what will probably be my my last question as we tie things up which is the idea, if you talk about measuring your life in journeys. Um, I feel like I I do the same thing. And, and actually just listening to you talking about walking alone through uh, your New England neighborhood as a child. Um, and then now going to a Poland that is very different than the Poland you went to in 1994. Um, what do you think the next decade or two has in store for you in terms of life journeys? Or do you prefer not to know?
0: I think, you know what, Ralph? I think at a certain point, you do have to map things out a little bit. Hmm. And as you know, in this book and this other, you know, this other manuscript that I've been just staring at for a couple of years, I really love the idea of returns. But now I, I feel a little bit like I, there's so much else I want to see. And, you know, I was in Iceland for the month of February. Hmm. and I I just, I, uh, by myself, I just wanted to seek out winter,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I went to, I, I actually, it was, it was officially a writing residency, but then I ended up doing a, a, a magazine story, but I was like, I love Iceland in winter. I'm coming back all of next February, and I literally started making my plans then I got home, and I thought, wait a second, there's so many places you haven't been, because That's the thing. People are always saying, well, you know, do you know a good place to stay in Hungary? I'm like, I've never been to Hungary.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Marcia DeSanctis' book, A Hard Place to Leave, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.